I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Jennifer Dunks. Jennifer is Global Head of Mobility at EIT Inno Energy one of the world's leading climate tech investors. There, she's responsible for all investments in the field of transport and mobility, with nearly 25 new investments in the last four years. Great topic here, great uh, overall discussion, I think. So EIT, Inno Energy, based in Europe, right at kind of the epicenter of climate tech and this shift in mobility and energy, and the approach is, is unique. We talk about this and the importance that they put on this holistic ecosystem, right? So not just making an isolated investment in a given company, but looking at that company and then also everything around it that needs to come together for that company. Say it's you know, someone looking to manufacture battery cells in Europe, for example, which example we talk about. You can't just come into that and have an idea and go launch it. There's so much that needs to come together to enable something like that to grow and to have an impact. And that's the way Jennifer and the team at AIT you know, energy is thinking. So we talk about that kind of conceptually, the yeah investment thesis and how they're thinking about things. And we also talk generally about some of the, uh, or I guess in specifics about some of the big macro trends here, right? So the shift in mobility, what decarbonization actually means, what it's not, the importance of vehicle level efficiency, how we can introduce new mobility modes into various forms of, of transport, whether it's commercial, last mile type stuff, private use vehicles, how do you build not only pilots, but sustainable businesses here that are actually going to allow this technology to have some meaningful impact. And talk about the 15 minute city, a lot, a lot of, a lot of great ground we cover here. So I'll leave it here for now. I mean, Jennifer, right at the epicenter of this change and shift in mobility and energy, great experience, great work she's doing. Please enjoy this conversation with Jennifer Dunks. Today I'm joined by Jennifer Dunks. Jennifer, thanks for coming on the podcast here. Thank you, Brandon. Happy to be here today. Yeah, I think we have uh, a lot of a lot of fun topics here, and uh, really looking forward to learning from you. I think you have some cool work you're doing, cool experience, all, all that type of stuff. So, with that being said, would you mind setting the stage here? just quickly introducing yourself and the work you're doing at Inno Energy. Yeah, happy to. So Inno Energy is actually one of the world's leading climate tech investors. Um, what we have done to this date is work to set up one of the largest ecosystems around energy innovation in the world. So we have over, well, close to 600 partners. We have about 29 shareholders from industry, finance, research, and academia. That includes companies like Volkswagen or Siemens or ING. Mm -hmm. We've actually invested already uh, about $700 million into about 500 startups. And we currently have about 300 active companies in our portfolio. We're located in seven different offices across Europe and one in uh, the U.S. And we are 
interested in, in investing in innovation that creates an impact in the area of sustainability. And I'm responsible with the company for the topics around mobility or investments around mobility. Great. And this, uh, the way you phrase that, right, of an ecosystem around climate innovation, that strikes me as, as unique. Can you elaborate on kind of what, what does that actually mean? Yeah, I think that in some ways our secret sauce um, in that we're not just looking to invest in a company, but we're looking at what is around the company that needs to be supported or established. And I'll give you one example. We, we were one of the earliest investors in Northwold back in 2017 when they had the crazy idea, Peter and Paulo, to set up green cell manufacturing in Europe. And this was this time, it's in, I'm sure you know, but that Europe in, would have said and was saying it's too late. You know, we can't compete with Asia. They're too far ahead. We can't compete with cost and everything. And we actually looked at the opportunity of doing manufacturing, for example, in Europe, and recognized that it would be about a 250 billion euro market opportunity by 2025. So with that in mind, we leveraged um, what we could at the European Commission. We leveraged the industry to say, hey, is this something we don't even want to try? And then if we want to try it, it meant who do we need to bring to the table to ensure that we can actually have success with doing this. And part of that was then looking at the, the raw material supply. And if you look at where we are today, there's now a fund of 400 million dedicated just to raw materials and mining. And again, looking at 2017 until today, um, we had no raw material projects running at that time, and today we have about 20 that are in lithium mining, cobalt, and things like that. So the point to your question is just who, who in this ecosystem around the startup needs to be at the table in order to make sure that we can create success? It could be, in, it could be the industry. It could be financial institutions, it could be um, national or EU funding schemes. So what do we need to do? Yeah, and it, it, thanks for that example. I think that makes makes a lot of sense. And one of one of the things that I've come to f believe pretty strongly through through this podcast and, and otherwise is that, you know, the, the companies that are innovating in the mobility space, the energy space, trying to create a better future, that's there's a sticking point where you know development of technology for technology's sake, or even if you have this intention and you you think you have good product market fit, it's it's pretty easy to fall flat on the implementation piece and like that that bridge of how do you actually get this idea and this solution in the world and and make the impact that you have you know, sought to make it when you first started. That seems to be where a lot of the magic is is like uh, at least in the, in the current state. And can, so can you speak to kind of what what goes into actually doing this well, and, and why why is this a service that Inno Energy does well? Yeah, it's a good point, and I, I can just underline it, exactly what you said. I think part of what needs to happen is there needs to be an acknowledgement that we're going to need a lot of money, because most of the stuff also that we're investing in is CAPEX-heavy. So it's, it's, it's a lot of hardware. We invest primarily in hardware. And it has a really long um, return cycle because it's hardware and we're setting up wind farms or gigafactories or um, developing new vehicles in the, in the area of mobility. And so from the beginning, there needs to be a focus on what's the strategy for funding uh, these types of companies so that they can scale through the, the manufacturing part that, that you alluded to. And I think in most of the cases, it needs to be some mixed financing. So of course we need um, the private um, VC type money and that, that will come when we can get contracts signed, mm -hmm. but we do also need support um, from the public sector. And this, this can also come in terms of, you know, like advances in permitting. I even, I don't know if you've been following, I'm sure you have, um, the IRA and then Europe's response to the IRA. And one thing that Europe said they will work on is the permitting. And I think that's, that's 
actually another piece that's quite critical in addition to the funding because you, you, you can't take too long to, to do all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be an interesting point actually to, to expand on, right? So um, I'm here in the Detroit area. You're, you're calling in from uh, from Europe. I yeah, the, the company I lead does manufacturing in this in this space, so I'm spending a lot of time in around uh, the IRA and the incentives and the impact of that. But as you mentioned, you know, Europe kind of re responding here, and I'd be interested. Could you uh, could you speak a bit about you know what what's going on here with the two different forces and, and how is your what is Europe's response looking like? Yeah, I mean, I think actually this whole topic is very positive. In in some ways, it's been also a bit of a wake-up call, I would say, to Europe when the U.S. came with such a attractive um, program, you know, really focusing on CAPEX, but also the OPEX um, uh, savings that they are um, planning for. I think when I look at the two, they're both somehow um, very ambitious, and they, they both lay out some really great um, mechanisms to, to facilitate the uptake. The, the things that I see a little bit different is in the U.S., it looks more simple, like they're offering tax credits to people who buy EVs and things like that. They're also supporting them the operational cost of doing manufacturing. When you look at Europe's response, one thing that you see a little bit more is there's a focus on reskilling the workforce. So they have a big bucket for what's called the Skills Institute. Um, I think that that's actually kind of interesting. To the point we just talked about, they have a whole section on reducing the red tape and accelerating permitting. Um, maybe that's something that's not as relevant in the U.S. as it is uh, in Europe. Um, and another point in, in, in Europe's response, I think, is securing the supply chain. So the materials that, that you need to make sure that, that we have that then. Gotcha. Yeah, I think like when I think just back to the first point about the, the U.S., there was um, like to buy American, right? I think that's that's also somehow part of that IRA. That I don't see it as strongly in Europe, but more like manufacturing in Europe. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Appreciate that. And how about one of the other, I think, really interesting topics has been this idea of banning the internal combustion engine and what that looks like and, you know, the stance that certain cities or even regions have taken and how that's, especially over the last few weeks, been, been evolving. Can, can you speak to how you, how you think about, uh, I don't know, I guess what you're, what you're seeing there and how you're thinking about internal combustion engine bans? Well, um, might be a little bit provocative, but I think if we don't have some kind of regulation or ban, it probably wouldn't happen on its own. I mean, we've been talking about electric mobility. When I go back and look at some of my notes and, and slide presentations for, from even 10, well, maybe not quite 10 years ago, but we were talking about it then. We've been really talking about it for a long time, and I think uh, I know bands aren't maybe popular, but I do wonder how we would have gotten to this next phase of reducing the CO2 from transport without something more consequent. Maybe to, to this point too, what I'm very excited about right now is that we can now move the discussion beyond this point of it's not just about replacing the powertrain you know, taking the ICE out and putting in a battery electric. That was kind of the first step. But now it's really about what new technologies are out there that can create a meaningful energy efficiency on top of the battery electric motor. And, you know, since we're an investor in the space, we're looking at all these great examples of things that are already on the road or things that are coming that will really advance not just the transition toward electric, but even more so towards the higher energy efficiency. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really important piece. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's lots of questions about the right applications, whether it's 
t today or long term from a like a life cycle emissions and perspective. And one of the things that is completely removed from that discussion is just a good thing overall is let's improve the per mile efficiency of the of the vehicle, kind of regardless of propulsion system. Exactly. Exactly. And the other side of that coin, right, is if you do take a internal combustion engine vehicle, swap it out with a battery electric propulsion system, and it's a very inefficient vehicle. Like it, you might feel green and it might yeah. look green to the outside because you get the plug in and it's quiet, but that is not a green vehicle that you're driving. Yeah, I think we somehow didn't do our job right if that's the end of the story, right? We just didn't challenge ourselves to see um, where we could take this uh, mobility transition. Yeah. And how do you think about, I mean, so one of the one of the things, at least right in the, in the U.S. here, given the car culture, and I'd be interested to get your, your perspective. I'm, I mean, you, you certainly have experience in the U.S. Of, uh, on that or also the kind of the European equivalent, but the kind of the natural market forces lead electrification to be a a feature for performance, right? So people are touting, hey, it's there's a ton of torque. That's awesome. You can yeah. drive you can drive fast like that's and that's what it tends to be where we get bigger and faster vehicles which are also heavier, which yeah, sure you're removing tailpipe emissions, but you now have a heavier pedestrian collisions are much worse with other vehicles or collisions or uh, pedestrians are more likely to happen because you're moving faster and then also you're just are burning more energy because and you have more non-propulsion system pollutants when you have tires that are um, being pushed like that's kind of the natural market force because that's what sells um, in marketing departments make these types of decisions seem to be driving in that direction what, what are you seeing in in this space and are you seeing something similar in other markets I mean yeah, you make a good point. I mean, I think it might be two things. So one, definitely what the customer wants, that, that's true. But also the larger vehicles do have a better margin for the OEMs, right? So there's it kind of works in, in both ways. Um, but, you know, this is one of these, this is why I love the topic of mobility so much is that it's a behavioral topic, right? I mean, it's we have to somehow change the narrative with all the users to to also show that um, not every use case needs an oversized vehicle. And this is tough and probably tougher in the U.S. You know, I come from Detroit, so I lived most of my life there before the last 13 years over in Europe. But when you look in Europe, the vehicles are small. Um, I was just recently in, in Utah at my dad's and the, the the largest vehicle here is still quite small in the U.S., but I think it's a mindset change that we have to start talking about um, to try to change the behavior from the people. And, and if we can't, like I said a, a few minutes ago, then let's at least exhaust all the cool technologies that are coming out to uh, increase the energy efficiency. And some of the things that we're, we are seeing is to your point, you mentioned the, the heavy weight of the vehicles. There are new technologies for lighter weight materials, and not only just lighter weight, but also sustainable materials. What does that look like? Um, the Mercedes uh, Vision EQXX, I don't know if you saw that, but they, they now have completed two trips with over a thousand kilometer range. Um, and one of the things that's part of that is just it doesn't look significantly different than a car, uh, normal car, but they reduce the drag to 0.17, you know, and, and that's compared to normal car, which might have about 0.25 or an SUV, which is even 0.45. Um, but that, that actually makes a, a meaningful difference. And then other things such as the thermal management of, of cooling the battery and, and things like that. And, one company we invested in in Slovenia is doing in-wheel motors and power electronics. And so essentially, instead of having the motor right in the center of the car, you have it in each wheel, and you have a motor and a mind controlling the car. Um, and what that does is it frees up space. You have so many less parts. 
Uh, you can make actually the vehicle smaller because you have a different way to do the packaging. And I think these are some of the things that are quite exciting, or even the, the topic of integrating solar, which has struggled. You can argue that, but it's still at the early stages, but definitely something to think about with Uptera from California. Um, we have uh, Lightyear Zero, they, they are now back as Lightyear Two, um, or Sona Motors from Germany. So you are seeing this starting to mm -hmm. take shape. Yeah, and I mean, so I, I've had uh, I guess Nathan Armstrong from Aptera a couple yeah. of years ago okay. on on the podcast, and then uh, I, talking about Inuo Motors, I had Gorat Skolcevich from uh, yeah. Alafe, one of my we have an awesome discussion with him on on the podcast, but maybe a year ago or, or so. Yeah. Okay. But if, if anyone's listening, this wants to, to check back. <laughs> I, I recommend both of those because I, I think these and the important thing, right? So the the Mercedes EQXX, right? You you can get a thousand mile or kilometers of range by just making a bigger battery pack. But for all the reasons that we've talked about here, yeah. like that and additional reasons, like from a sustainability perspective, right? We're, sure. The goal isn't to go and mine more materials and more scarce resources and throw them into bigger battery packs. Like the goal Agreed. is to use more with the limited energy storage that we have, right? Agreed. And a big part of this is also the discussion on the infrastructure, right? So these really go hand in hand. I can just share a personal story. I've been driving electric for over 10 years now, and I've never had a dedicated charging station. I live in Germany now, so you'd think it's quite advanced, and it's getting better, of course, but I still have moments that are very difficult, like yesterday, um, where I, um, you know, I can't find a station, I need to get to a fast charger, I don't have the time, the first one wasn't working, I barely made it to the second one. Um, and this, if you're not loving this topic, you're probably turning in your electric vehicle. If this happens too many times, then you don't have a, a, a charging station. And that's why, maybe to your point, the balance of what should the range be with what is the infrastructure will really will go hand in hand. And the better we have an infrastructure, the more optimal we can make the designs of the car and the battery size. Yeah, and what do you see? So that this topic of infrastructure is a huge, hairy topic in itself with a bunch of different, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, diff different aspects here. But uh, we've been talking for, for some time, right? And there's a lot of emphasis on we need charging infrastructure to enable this increased adoption of electrified vehicle battery, electric vehicles often. Um, what, what do you see? Are, are there any things that you're particularly excited about being done in this space or any place where, you know, energy is playing that, that you're excited about? I mean, I think when we're looking at it from a macro level, the biggest topic that we're looking at right now is actually energy storage. So, you know, it's one thing to just build the stations and, and hope it all works out in the end, but we know that smart charging and grid management is going to play such an important role. How are we going to manage the charging of all these vehicles when they when they come? I mean, we're already seeing that in Sweden and Norway. Um, they're really dominating already the roads there. And I think there's a couple different topics here about how we will store and manage this. And maybe one question that we're not sure about, but what is the role then of the cars as an energy storage device? That's mm -hmm. That's something that's interesting, I think, to to consider. But definitely just a one one lingo answer to your question is smart charging and grid management. Those are really topics that we need to think about. Maybe may, may silly question, but can you expand further on so what's what's the role that energy storage is, is playing in here and why, why is that such an important piece? It's an important um, piece if you operate a under a couple assumptions about when people are charging, right? So for example, if you if you make the assumption that people will be charging at home in the evenings all at the same time, or um, it, it's, it's just about, and, and if they're already home and everyone's using all the energy that they are then using it in home, how do you balance that with the renewable energy generation? To your point earlier about 
like how do we make electric mobility smart? How do we use as few raw materials as possible? The same topic is how do we use as much renewable energy as possible when we're talking about charging? So how are we balancing the grid of, of using and generating renewables with the energy demand that's going to come from when people are charging? And I think part of the operating hypothesis is that we probably will see these peaks when people are charging and we need to mm -hmm. find a way to offset those peaks with the peaks that are being generated from renewables. Yeah, and I guess somewhat anecdotally, it seems like, especially over the last even six months here, there's been, and again, my company I play in is in that we build stuff space, but we've the amount of requests of containerized energy storage and hmm. often station or mobile energy storage, it's, it's just through the roof lately. It seems yeah. to be everyone's working on their own version of something to offload energy storage. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a big topic that's going to become even bigger as we electrify more just in general. It's not just cars, right, but just yeah. in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's maybe an interesting transition. So one of the one of the things I've heard you speak about, which also uh, I think is a, is an interesting topic, is okay. We're, we're not talking when purpose of of this podcast or the topics I cover on this podcast are safe, sustainable, effective, accessible transportation mobility. Essentially, is what is what I'm talking about, and that doesn't necessarily mean make a safer, more sustainable passenger car or a, a safer, more sustainable any specific vehicle, right? It's about yeah. creating a transportation ecosystem for the good movement of goods and people that is safer, more sustainable, more effective, and more accessible. Can you speak to kind of what, what do you see as the roles of different types of mobility in this mm -hmm. space beyond kind of, especially people who listen in the U.S. who have a, such a car-centric mind, you know, when we talk mobility, we think car, but can, can you speak beyond that? What, what do you see going on in the the trend to new mobility? Yeah, so I think one thing is um, if you look at the, the transportation um, report that just came out in 2021 again, the um, International Transportation Report, it talks about how many more kilometers traveled are expected from both people and from goods. And Due, due to population increase in, in some of the countries and also GDP increase, we're expecting that the, that the kilometers traveled from both people and from goods will be between two and three times by 2050. Using that as a basis, what it tells us is that our existing infrastructure, our existing technologies are not going to be enough. We must think bigger. We must push the envelope here. And so what does that mean, um, like in a tangible way to explain, is that, for example, here in Europe and our company as well, we have invested in three different Hyperloop solutions. And now we're looking at creating something more on a European basis, right? Like a whole Hyperloop um, uh, from a European perspective how you could use existing land that's maybe already being used for rail and then build above that the Hyperloop um, ecosystem. Maybe in the beginning it's just for uh, goods transportation. I don't know. But I think these are some of the things that we're saying is that the capacity is just not going to be enough. The roads that we have, the rail that we have, the planes that we have, it's not enough to sustain the growth. So with that said, do you want to build more roads? Do you want to build more train tra Like, what do you want to build more of? Why not build something new? If we can show again, back to our red thread of the conversation, if you can show that it's more energy efficient. And that's why we take a risk on some of those things that seem outside the box. Yeah, yeah like the, the idea of Hyperloop, right? Like that been thrown around for for sometimes in different capacities has been kind of the start and stops and and, and such uh, how, how do you see and I don't know how what degree of detail we can go here necessarily but like how, how do you see that actually being implemented with so you mentioned kind of potentially above yeah. existing yeah. rail infrastructure mm -hmm. 
I mean, technically, depending on how you even look at this, but, you know, let's say the Hyperloop is aiming for 600, 800 kilometer an hour, you know, very ambitious uh, speeds. Mm-hmm. But already today in, in Germany and France, I mean, you have rail that's going over 300. So do we need 600? I don't know. Maybe it's maybe the Hyperloop is a little bit slower than what, you know, the most ambitious number looks like, but it is leveraging a lot of t- technology like mag- magnetic levitation that's already being used in different countries around the world and already here. So it, it might not be this super, you know, crazy concept from Elon Musk, you know, where we all get shot in this thing and it goes as fast as we say. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a little bit different in the end. But it's, it's actually, if you consider it like that, it's not so far away from where we are today. And what you were asking, you know, how, how would you see it? I think just the point is that the rail already secured a lot of prime real estate. Mm-hmm. What can we do to leverage that real estate with a minimal impact on people? Maybe there's a way then to just build above. And that's what you do see on some of the designs for the Hyperloop, right? It's, it's just, it's just, um, it's just elevated in, in a little bit. So that's just one idea. Those yeah. things are way outside the box. They're going to take some time. But because of, of the focus of your podcast, at the same time, there's things we can already do today. And if you look at last mile topics, um, logis- the, the CO2 in the cities from transport, 25% is from logistics. And already we know today that if you use a different type of vehicle than a van, if you use an e-cargo bike, for example, you could reduce that well-to-wheel CO2. So it includes manufacturing, the whole thing, by 75%, 76%. That's, that's incredible. That's, a, that's an energy efficiency outside just the local emissions by using something that, frankly, is already here today. Yeah, e-cargo bike and it sounds, uh, I don't know, it's, it sounds like a crazy idea, again, coming from a such a car-centric idea, but in one of the, uh, one of my, I guess, couple-time guests here, Chris Bruntlett and his wife, Melissa Bruntlett in uh, the Netherlands, uh, okay. talking about the work <laughs> yeah. that, they've, yeah, that they're doing in biking, and you, you look at the way people, especially someone, if you haven't traveled there, like, you look where, like, this is a reality, right? There's, there's people is. who are utilizing, and it's not just in warm areas where no. it's where it's always just great weather. Like, this is a viable way to get around and to execute things if the city is set up correctly. Yeah. You, that's, your point is spot on. So, I mean, I have lived only in car-centric cities, working in the auto industry, so Detroit, Munich, and then Stuttgart. Stuttgart is maybe one of the most car-centric also because of the the, um, the, the, the way the city is structured. It, it is very hilly, um, so actually biking is very difficult on a regular bike. It's definitely possible with an e-bike, but with that being said, if there's no sidewalks, if there's no lane um, signage and things like this, no one will bike. But what brought me a little bit of hope is in Stuttgart, you could see that they started to repurpose some of the roads. You know, they painted them green, they, they repurposed it, and now it's only for buses and um, e-bikes or, or, you know, two, wheel, two and three wheelers. Almost from one day to the next, I saw so many people on those roads, the bike roads. And I, I, I was quite surprised, but it makes you think, if you bring that safety, if you bring that infrastructure, you can create a change. But without it, it's it's not going to happen. Yeah, and I think uh, essentially related. Uh, I guess one, one question: adoption here. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what, what's the right way to introduce micro mobility into in, into cities. Is this is this a question where it should be that you're, you know, you you have certain hubs that are being introduced? Are you somehow leveraging this existing space and reutilizing it, like what we're talking about here? Like, what what do you, what have you seen as like the the right way to to introduce and make this transition? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, some of the most successful things that we've seen is when you really involve the community. So you kind of say, you know, what do you want this street to look like? Now, nobody loves giving up parking. That That is just an absolute um, torture, right, for anyone to give up a single parking spot. But somehow in the communities where you try to test it out or you can pilot it a little bit and then they can see the impact, mm -hmm. you know, their kids are outside or people are walking more or whatever it might be, in almost all of those cases, they not only use it, but they are very satisfied with it. I think what's not working well is when you make the decisions for everybody. Um, that, that is more difficult for everybody to accept. With that said though, if you look on the other side, I think the offers that we give everyone, we have to be quite flexible. So, you know, with micromobility, it kind of started pretty heavily as sharing. Right, this whole sharing concept where you just pay for the amount of minutes you use it or the amount of kilometers you travel, and that's how it is. But we do see, at least in Europe, such an uptake in subscription. People want a little bit more convenience. They want a little bit more assurance that this vehicle is going to be available when and where I need it. And because of that, we're seeing some of those companies that are off, are more flexible in their business models be more successful. And I think that's really important. I mean, if you need this vehicle to get where you need to be, you it might not work for you to just depend on the sharing network. Mm -hmm. We have a study, um, not a study, but actually a project that we won in New York, in upstate New York. It's really interesting. We're working really close with about 10 different community partners to design the program for e-bikes for their community. It's a very hilly community. And long story short, we have three different programs that we're offering. So we have e-bike sharing, but then we have what's called the e-bike library, and we have lease to own. And I think we're also staying quite open to make sure that we, yeah, address what the community needs over this three-year period so we can dial some up or take some down depending on what what fits better for their use cases that, that's an interesting point in that so a lot of at least the way i tend to think when we're talking micromobility um you know vehicle sharing or or even subscription or whatever like i, I picture a more urban environment whether it's a art city even like a college town some, something like that where do you see are those the only places where this type of micromobility can be introduced? Or like when you're talking upstate New York, what type of actual that's, area that's are we talking about? More, I would say, of like a second tier type city. In some cases, um, we have five different cities that we're working with. Some of them, I would classify them as a village. Hmm. And what we saw, we also just finished a last mile logistics report looking at the cost of using e-cargo bikes plus e-vans, so a mixed fleet. And in that and in the case that you're talking about with shared mobility, I think the density is more important. So if you have a smaller town, but it's, it's relatively dense and you have some relatively dense hotspots. So in the New York example, the train station that takes you into New York City is a hotspot right? We have a, one downtown area that's a hot spot. And so if you, and then the people aren't so spread out because it's a, it's a small village, that's hmm. actually easier to cover the operational costs and manage that. I think where it gets difficult, more difficult is actually in the large sprawled out cities. So even when you look at those cities for different shared operators, you can see that in some areas they're profitable in some areas they're not and it kind of depends on the density yeah and i guess that's that's an important point to potentially underline too of like when we're talking so you're talking second tier village like you're not necessarily doing this pilot with the thought that yeah it would be great for people to have access to micro but you're this is 
there's a potential to out provide that service, which is a very meaningful service for this area, but also to do it in a way that's sustainable from a business perspective. That's it. Like from the get-go. It ha and, and not only that, I think what's really motivating to me, and I think it's part of your vision also in this podcast, is it's accessible. It's affordable. So we're... And part of the narrative that I would want to help change, and I hope this project does, is that micromobility shall not be a sort of fun, Friday night, you know, type of mode. It should mm -hmm. be respected as a proper mode of mobility, just like public transport for access to health care, access to education, and things like that. And that's those are the key uh community members that we're focused on is how do we get you to work? How do we get you access um, to, to health care for you or your loved one? And, and then how do we do it in an affordable way? And actually in this community, uh, they're kind of classified as underserved, right? So they have a certain um, immigration population, not the majority is not, uh, English is not the first language. So you have a lot of things where you have to design in to make sure that this is equitable and accessible. And along a similar thread, so one of the things, and I don't know exactly how you, you classify this, this activity you're doing, but like traditional pilots that have been done over the last few years for new technology, whether it's micromobility or you could say the same thing about some EV or charging or autonomous vehicle adoption, like these have been interesting pilots, but then once the support from whatever external body dries up, there, there's nothing. There's nothing there to actually hold up this project without, without the bounds of the pilot. So then it becomes, yeah, we learned something, but we're not making a meaningful long-term impact. How do you think about avoiding that situation? I think what we're trying to do with that is design it from the start that it's designed for sustainability in terms of profitability. So what does that mean is it means a couple different things. One is we do need to look on how this is integrated into their whole public transport ecosystem. You know, are there subsidies or support that's already being provided for buses or other transport that could also be at some point open to this mode? Question mark, you know. Then another topic is sponsorships and partnerships. One thing that's quite new but, but growing with popularity here in Europe is called mobility budgets. It's essentially taking, when you go to a, any corporate, the, today some of the, some of the um, employees would be offered a company car or they might be offered a train ticket, but something like this. And now mm -hmm. they're incorporating e-bikes, e-mopeds, regular bikes, and saying you can have a company car, you can have a train ticket, or you can have an e-bike or a cargo bike. And so how do we bring this kind of program into corporates or sponsorship models or partnership models where it's actually then supported like any other mode by those companies? And the third piece is what kind of innovations can we bring into this to make sure we are going in that direction? And I'll give you one example. So one thing that's happening in Europe is that it's mandated to use a swappable battery in these vehicles. The batteries must be able to come out, be swapped for another, and we are building then an entire infrastructure for those swappable batteries. That brings down the cost um, in a couple different ways, but also operationally, because you no longer need to take the whole vehicle in a truck or whatever, bring it outside the city to charge it. You can just go to these stations that are around the city quite close and, and charge it. So I think those are some of the things where we're looking at innovation then also to bring the cost down. Got it. Yeah, it make, makes a lot of sense. It's cool, cool to hear you're thinking about so many different aspects of, of this. I mean, admittedly, these are challenging problems that we're trying to solve that are multi multifaceted that, I mean, that's from the beginning of this discussion, right? It's, it's talking about the importance of realizing how many different stakeholders there are and everything how many yeah. different ways there are that these things can go wrong and proactively having the the ability to kind of look up and out and identify those things and um, figure it all out before you get bitten. Yeah. 
And so one topic we've, we've talked around this, this idea, but not specifically, and I, I want to highlight and spend a couple minutes talking about, so one of, uh, really enjoy, so it's a couple years old now, but our article you wrote in, in Forbes on mobility in a 15 minute city, think of it like water from the tap. Can, can you introduce this, this idea of the fifth, and I recommend to, if you're listening to this and you enjoy the discussion, definitely check out the article. I think it's, it's worth reading, but can you introduce, uh, this idea of the 15 minute city and what it means to you? Yeah. So maybe I'll just start though quickly with the, the water out of the tap. I think it's a, a nice analogy to give you a vision of how I would love to see mobility in the future. So essentially when I put that, that analogy there, it's that mobility is available when you need it, where you need it, how you need it, just like water out of the tap. Because when you turn on the water, if you need it hot, if you need it cold, if you need it hard or less pressure, you have it exactly how you want it, and we never think about it, at least in the developed countries. So I, we have to put that disclaimer. Mm -hmm. But how often when we wake up, if you are you know, not driving with a car, but even if you are, do you have to kind of plan your mobility? You have to think, you know, okay, I need to get to the airport. I got to take the train. I got to take a bus. What time does this leave? How does this work? Is it raining tomorrow? What do I have to carry? You know, it's just a lot of different topics. And I think the concept of this water out of the tap is that somehow it's so available and accessible that you don't have to think about it. And the first use case of that is the 15-minute city. And the concept is essentially just that everything you might need, so education, healthcare, food, um, community, is all within a 15-minute bike or ride from your home. And it's interesting because I think because of COVID, many more of us were exploring that, let's say, 15, 20-minute, you know, um, distance around our homes when also in Germany we, we also had the lockdown period so you were really limited to to that area and getting also to know what was in your area because you didn't have the luxury to go outside of it but it's it's about you know can we put in and you know those key cornerstones and then what you mentioned earlier create safe infrastructure for you to access it with a bike or a, a you know, walking in the different communities. And, and how would that change our whole CO2 mobility footprint if we could do that? I mean, if we would also, by the way, spend so much less time in congestion, you know, save a lot of time. And of course, it's not perfect. It's not 100%. So, I mean, if you need to go to a specialist, or you, need, you know, there's mm -hmm. always going to be reasons. But if you have sort of the core of those topics, that could be quite meaningful. Yeah, and how, so I think it's a, it's a great aspiration. How, how real is this idea and where, I mean, is this something that's just purely theoretical right now or are there cities where something like this is, is truly a more or less a reality at this point? Yeah. I mean, definitely it's already a reality in, in many different cities and in some cities they're working to make it to, to go more towards that. So like in Barcelona, they've identified this concept as the super blocks, right, where they're, because that's more of a sprawled out city, right, where they need to actually do this a number of times to create that that 15 minute, uh, you know, ecosystem. I happen to live now about 30 minutes from Stuttgart in a village called Esslingen, and it's here. I can get my dentist, my grocery store, everything by walking. And actually you have to walk because you can't go into the city center with, with a car. So you actually are forced to take either public transport to the, the border of the city or, or walk to it and, and, then, and then go in. So I think when I have been traveling around, every time I see more and more pieces of infrastructure that support that. And I think if you look at some of the data um, in the past, the store owners in the city thought, if you take away the parking spots, people aren't going to come. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's, a lot of the data has shown the opposite, that people not only come, but they spend more time. Because if you come with a car, oftentimes you come, you park, you get out, you get in, you get out, and then you're leaving again. 
if you have to somehow park outside and then walk in, probably you're spending more time in, in that and maybe go into a couple more stores while you're there just to make it more of a worthwhile stop. So I think you're seeing it. I think it is more difficult when you think of the sprawled out suburbs, but in the U.S., you know, but you do see some movement towards building communities in those suburbs, whether it starts with a, a neighborhood connecting to a couple more neighborhoods and then they have, you know, maybe, you know, some, some key cornerstones to those pieces, whether it's you know, access to food or resources or whatever, just the job part might be a little bit different, having access to jobs. Yeah, gotcha. And I mean, even though the, I guess there's, there's so many facets to, to jobs, but like that, yeah, that's been softened a bit with how hybrid and remote work is a reality for, for certain types of jobs, right? Right. That's actually yeah. a good point because if you think of this topic 10 years ago or five years ago, could you imagine that we would have the type of maybe hybrid concept that we're, we're all still living a bit today? I think no one could imagine that, right? And yet yeah. we do. So it's important to press our imaginations, even though like when I think of my mom outside of Detroit in one of these suburbs, how would a 15-minute city look? Not sure. I don't know in, in that kind of sprawled out. But where can we do it? Let's at least mm -hmm. start there. Yeah, I mean, even picking a very car-centric, like even Detroit's making some progress in certain areas yeah. and having neighborhoods and things where it's a world different than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago from the ability to walk around and bike around and have access to things. And I think that the pandemic further, I mean, Paris is, is the obvious example, but there's other cities, right, that kind of were, were sparked and forced into an area of change where, yeah, maybe there would have been a bunch of pushback, but no one had the opportunity to push back because <laughs> the whole world was in a, a state of chaos. And on the other side, what emerges is a biking ecosystem and culture that, and infrastructure now that supports that in a way that it, it's seems almost impossible to imagine a few years ago. Yeah, I, I have to share one kind of funny story with you on this. So I first moved over to Germany when I was 35. And um, until that point, I can tell you that I had never visited a cobbler, like a shoe repair. I, I never had that topic come up. Mm -hmm. After living in Munich for some months in the winter, I walked so much that I walked through the bottom of my shoe. So actually, in about three months, there was a hole in the sole of my shoe from walking so much. There was also some um, salt and stuff on the sidewalks. But I had never walked so much in a single pair of shoes as I did in that, that first three months over there. And, and that, I actually wrote a Forbes article about that, too, because I had never needed a cobbler. And now I'm using a cobbler routinely. But again, if you don't you don't think about it. It's a different mindset. Um, it's a different setup. Does it work completely? But I had never walked that and never had I thought about it. But there are places that are doing it, and um, there are ways to go more in that direction of becoming less maybe car-centric or, or using more of the different options that we have available. Yeah, and, and maybe hopefully obvious that but just just to point out like i can't imagine this is an additional cost and inconvenience over what you're but it's replacing everything else that goes with right so now you got a shoe repair but you don't have yeah. all the other stuff that I had, comes with yeah I mean, a shoe repair compared to like a, a monthly um car payment and, and gas and, and all that is is a, a low price to pay and yeah. you know we never even talked about it but also the health benefits Mm -hmm. you, you can't ign ignore it. There, there's health benefits to being outside, to walking, to biking, to doing those things. And, yeah, so I think that's also a silver lining to it. Yeah, very, very cool. Well, Jennifer, this has been a ton of fun. I think we've covered a, a lot of topics here. It's been great to have learning from you, getting your perspective on a wide range of things here. Um, is there, as we, as we wrap up here, is, is there anything we missed that you were hoping to talk about? Or kind of either way, 
anything that you're hoping someone listen, listening to this walks away from the conversation thinking about? Um, I think one thing that I think about sometimes is that just to be reminded that, you know, we spent over a hundred years really optimizing the car. We were just tweaking it, improving every little aspect of the car. And now we're at the beginning of this trend, and that was the internal combustion engine. Now we're at this point of not only going to zero emission passenger cars, but also thinking about all these new options for mobility. And it's going to be a marathon. We're going to get things wrong, but we're literally just at the beginning. So imagine what could this look like in 100 years if we keep showing up for the topic. So show up, take a risk. If you're an off-taker, show up and put money in the game. Show up as, as you, Brandon, and try this new crazy, you know, moped or whatever that is showing up on your street. Just try it, and let's just all, like, try to work towards this new mobility, which would all make our lives even better, I can imagine. Yeah, I think that that's a great place to, to leave it in a, in a great message. So I'll have, I'll have links in the show notes if you're listening and want to learn more or uh, you know, connect with Jennifer or anything. Um, yeah, re- really appreciate it. Like I said, this has been, been a lot of fun and uh, yeah, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thanks so much, Brandon. And thank you for listening, everybody. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jennifer Dooms. So what what stands out to me? So we, we uh, one, I think the work that they're doing, Jennifer's doing at EIT on energy, really, really cool. And we also, we were able to talk in detail about a few of these kind of hot button topics for me. So, right, th- this idea of yeah, shifting a propulsion system alone and introducing electric vehicles in place of internal combustion vehicles at the same scale and maybe larger size and weight, like that is not the solution for decarbonization. And we were able to talk in detail about Okay, why isn't that a solution? And what what's a better solution, right? And I, I like the way Jennifer and her team is, is thinking about these things. Also, this idea of the fifteen minute city and where is this right? Where is it wrong? These types of things, but but ultimately the the core thing that stands out to me is the importance of a holistic ecosystem level view of transformative technology, right? So it's not developing technology for technology's sake. It's not just launching a single company within this complex ecosystem, but it's trying to figure out where where do we collectively need to go go and where, what are all the pieces that need to come? Who are the partners, the contributors, the stakeholders who all need to be pulling in the same direction and to pave this new ground and allow us to collectively reach new new areas? And that is so core to the way I'm thinking about my this this podcast my work I just generally the shift in, in transportation and I, I really enjoy hearing Jennifer talk about how they're handling that how EIT and all energy is, is doing this type of stuff so I'll leave things there for now oh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation got a lot out of it I hope hope you did as well also if you like this episode I have another recommendation for you check out the City Age podcast hosted by Alan Markovich and Anna Stafford if you're in the business of city building in the public or private sector, this show could be for you. So what do they cover? So whereas the Future Mobility podcast, I'm focused on transportation in various forms, including the city transit as a piece of that. They focus at the City Age podcast on the city with mobility as one piece of that, but they also get wider than that. So they interview public officials and business executives in engineering, transportation, real estate, finance, and more focus on how their guests are helping to build a more prosperous, green, and equitable future. So again, you like this episode, you like this podcast, the approach I take here with Future Mobility, I really think you'd enjoy it. I enjoy the City Age podcast. I think you will too. So check it out. I'll leave it there for now. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Check out the City Age podcast. As always, more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. 
If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.